0: Through the trees I will find you, I will heal the ruins left inside you, cause I'm still here breathing now, I'm still here breathing now, but you're not coming back, so you're welcome back to the Creator's Pausing Podcast, I'm your host Jackson Eflin. (laughs) And I'm your co-host Alex Greyhawk. That goddamn song has been stuck in my head for a week now. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for episode 3 of our Bride of Monster Bracket. And if that was meaningless to you, uh, you clearly haven't watched Jennifer's Body. So before you do, trigger warning for recent Relationships.
1: Also mild gore. And there is also a minor trigger warning for mild gore for our other film this
0: week, Us. That's about it. Honestly, these are reasonably tame films for the horror bracket.
1: Mm-hmm. Should also mention there's quite a few slurs in Jennifer's oh, Body. <laughs> I think
0: I was drinking every time, yikes, and I was at seven by the end of the movie. I also have many notes for the end of the movie. <laughs>
1: And that's mostly because it is a product of its time. It was filmed in 2007.
0: Mm -hmm. And boy, howdy.
1: Yep. But we will go ahead and get into that later. So far, it's been interesting. We've been able to kind of pick out a common theme for each of these episodes. Mm -hmm. Here, it's
0: a little bit more difficult to do so. I'd say the common theme here is meeting the shadow self, Mm -hmm. as it were. Yes. uh, In a sort of Jungian sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, also, I will say... Us is a movie that is much better experienced if you know nothing going in. Uh, Apart from there are doppelgangers and really good actors. Have fun with that. If you haven't seen it and you think it might be fun, stop, watch now, come back later.
1: But I think with that warning out of the way, we can go ahead and get into Us. So why don't you give us a summary?
0: Sure. So the opening title card lets us know that there are thousands of miles of tunnels under the United States. Subways, old basements, some have no purpose at all. Meanwhile... As a child, Adelaide wanders off from her parents' at the Santa Cruz boardwalk into a hall of mirrors where she sees someone who looks just like her. Later, Adelaide is grown up, married with kids, and they're on the way to their vacation home. But it's still near the Santa Cruz beach and Adelaide is afraid to go back. A stressful day gets worse that night when all the family doppelgangers show up and <clears throat> chase them out of the house. Gabe, Adelaide's husband, kills his doppelganger with a boat and they all flee to their friend's house only to find that those friends also had doppelgangers who have managed to kill them all because those are a less effective family. They managed to kill those and doppelgangers of Zora and Jason. But this is a nationwide uh, phenomenon. Millions of doppelgangers dressed in red suits are staging some sort of demonstration. Before they can deal with that, Adelaide's doppelganger red kidnaps the actual son Jason and takes him to the underground lair. Adelaide goes to rescue him and we learn that this is all some sort of abandoned government project. Two bodies, but one soul, able to control each other, the ones underground having little freedom. But one day, somehow, as a child, Red managed to find her autonomy and lead this revolution that's happening. Red and Adelaide fight, and Adelaide wins and brings Jace up out of the tunnels. Like the family's off on their way to find some safety, only for flashbacks to reveal that way back at the beginning, Red and Adelaide switched places, even following the Doppelganger the whole time.
1: So that's us? Yeah. I would like to go ahead and pat myself on the back for figuring out the twist.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that it was. We were still in like the first thirty minutes. How the fuck am I notes?
1: I've pretty much figured it out when Red was introducing all of the doppelgangers to the family.
0: Mm-hmm. It's incredibly frustrating watching movies for this person. I'm so glad I saw this movie before that, or I would have been <laughs> like, I think it's a great twist. But apparently, <laughs> I also think it's a great twist. I just have seen every movie, <laughs> not every movie. I just. You're one with the plot force. I am.
1: But I was specifically able to pick that out because none of the other doppelgangers are able to speak except for Red.
0: Mm -hmm. They can all do a kind of thing at best, but... Yeah. Which, that's unnerving. It is. (laughs) And a lot of thoughts on it later, we can circle back. That twist is pretty good, and it's kind of the thing that I want people to not know going in, because I think it's much better... To have that, that surprise and then watch a second time now knowing that, considering like how that affects the story. Mm-hmm. And I broadly think it all holds up. There are some times when I think that characters say and do things that are maybe just a little bit deliberately obfuscatory, but it's not too bad. I'm not annoyed by it. It is not to the point where it is clearly making choices that only you would make to preserve the twist. Mm. There are some things that it could have been a little clearer
1: yeah i mean honestly i think adelaide's ptsd makes a lot more sense after the twist
0: oh absolutely a lot of it does like hold up pretty well a Mm -hmm. lot of it tracks a lot of foreshadowing is clearly there that Mm -hmm. works really well where do we want to start man there's a lot to unpack here i think that a lot of conversation around this film is related to jordan peele who is the writer producer director and also made academy award winning get out Mm -hmm. uh The year before, year before that, like that. This is kind of a a follow-up, as it were, Mm -hmm. at least culturally. But I mean, it's not like the same universe or the same story or even the same themes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just because it's the same kind of birth from the mind of Jordan Peele, Mm -hmm. they're kind of talking about in the same space of these Mm -hmm. horror movies dealing with blackness, which I think does a bit of discredit to us because I think it is it stands pretty well on its own and is better understood through other lenses. Uh, But also, I mean, if you haven't seen Get Out, what are you doing? They're both these kind of like somewhat high-concept movies about social issues in America mm-hmm. and through the lens of a horror movie. Mm-hmm.
1: Although, I think one thing that struck me while watching the film is just how much of Jordan Peele's humor is able to permeate through.
0: God, especially Winston Duke, who is so funny. He plays Gabe. You probably recognize him as M'baku or no, M'Baku from Black Panther. He's incredibly funny, incredibly charming. He's such a dork.
1: Yeah. He is this giant dorky teddy bear throughout the film and it's great
0: such just sweetie. I love him so much
1: But yeah there's just also a lot of these scenes that kind of push the situation so far to its breaking point that it ends up in kind of this absurdity mm-hmm. but it still works in a horror film sense. It's really impressive.
0: There's a great bit where they're about to head away from the friend's house and they start arguing about who gets to drive based on who has the most kills.
1: Dad's leg is messed up. You're handcuffed. It's not safe. I'm driving. Zora, no. I have the highest kill
0: count in the family. You don't have the highest kill count. I killed both twins. Wrong. I just killed the second one.
1: I killed Kitty.
0: So that's one, 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 and two. I killed two. I killed myself and Josh, so. It doesn't matter. Zora, get in the back. It's remarkable how fast they, like, came to terms with that, but also that feels real for stressful situations. Mm-hmm.
1: The funny parts of the film definitely feel intentional, mm-hmm. but they are subtly so. Like, the film is winking at you, but it's not flipping on the laugh track.
0: Right. This movie is very deft in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he had a first shot of the whole movie, then went back and said, hmm, what can I play with? How can I get a little mischievous? And I think it works as a style really well because it keeps it kind of fun. It keeps it from being too heavy if this was too gritty and real it might not be like as enjoyable honestly i think one of the
1: best scenes to kind of encapsulate all of that is some of the musical choices going on when they're at the tyler's god
0: uh the tyler's being the friend's house i didn't really name because they're barely characters
1: Mm -hmm. they're in like two or three scenes Mm
0: -hmm. yeah they have a like google home type thing and they keep trying to use it to help them in any way, but it keeps misinterpreting things as like, call the police as, sure, playing Fuck the Police by N.W.A.
1: Fuck the police, coming straight
0: the it's very good. Yeah. And like, there's a lot of like fun references in here, like fun Snow White imagery going on, some Alice in Wonderland imagery going on. The opening slow zoom in to tell us what the Hands Across America thing was also has like references to Chud and the like, Goonies on the side, which nice, mm-hmm. both about like tunnels and caves and stuff.
1: Speaking of that, why don't we go ahead and go to the beginning of the film. It, it's not quite a flashback, but it's uh, before the time jump.
0: Mm-hmm. It serves the same function as the text crawl from Star Wars and it is giving you some just a data downloaded information that you need to know to understand what's happening that there wasn't a better way to insert into the plot. Mm-hmm. I really
1: love the whole sequence with Adelaide and her parents at the the boardwalk. There's this fight going on between the parents, but it's not like a screaming match. It's like a Cold War. There's a lot of subtle jabs and digs at each other, and they're both wielding their daughter as this weapon against the other. And it really gives a good sense of what their relationship is like.
0: Mm -hmm. You can tell that their daughter going through a trauma that they have to deal with as a family is probably the best thing that could happen to that marriage, Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately. Mm
1: -hmm. Although, one weird thing, during that whole sequence, Adelaide gets this candy apple, Mm -hmm. and it's bright red, and the film film uses red very frequently. It's it's a prominent color that comes up. The way that the color is used, it's almost like uh, someone took a highlighter to the film. It's like, Mm -hmm. hey, this thing's important. And that also means that Adelaide never takes a bite out of the candy apple, which doesn't make any sense for, she must be around like eight years old there.
0: Mm-hmm. There could be some like underlying symbolism there, or it could be that they just, when you eat a thing, especially something that could melt, it gets hard to film. Mm-hmm. I-, I get it. Oh, another thing I found when I was researching, apparently, like, one of the parents mentions that they're a, filming a movie over there on the boardwalk. Let's, go, let's be in a movie. And that's presumably Lost Boys, because Santa Cruz boardwalk, was mm. nice. Again, lots of nice little, like, references. You don't catch unless you're paying attention to them, which I, which I appreciate.
1: Yeah, you also have to be slightly steeped in horror as a genre. Mm-hmm.
0: I miss that, and I love Lost Boys. <laughs> We're kind of hitting surface-level things, but one more thing I do want to mention. The like Hall of Mirrors that she goes into is like this Native American-themed shaman vision quest thing. And then when we go back 40 years later, it's become Merlin's Enchanted Forest. <laughs> I appreciate the subtle storytelling of someone making a stink about that in the intervening time and not getting rebuilt. That was funny to me. Do you want to get into kind of the commentary this film is making and what it's trying to say? Do you want to do that yet, or? Uh, sure. I think that was a pretty good spot for it. Okay, so with Get Out, it was pretty clear what it was talking about. It's uh, some of the horrors of being a black man in America, and blackness in America in general. While there was subtlety to it and layers to it, it was a pretty clear thing. This movie required a little bit more effort on the viewer's behalf, so people kind of didn't react to it as strongly because it wasn't as laid out. Mm-hmm. So what's your read on it, having presumably not like done all the deep dives for the last week or so that I've been mm-hmm. doing?
1: I think you can read a lot of themes and messages into us. I think the strongest one that I can pull out is it's about code switching. Hmm. The idea that lots of minority populations feel the need to change how they act how they dress the type of vocabulary they use and just in general a lot of pieces of their personality when interacting with mainstream white america
0: and there's even a very good bit when gabe is trying to defend the house against the doppelgangers when they're first to sort of showing up in the street menacing but not clearly visible yet Mm -hmm. where he goes from his very fun convivial folksy teddy bear dialogue to hi can i help you if y'all are out here trying to scare people, I think you picked the wrong house for that. Some kind of more, like, thuggish dialogue. Throws in a little bit more
1: AAVE. Now, I thought I already done told y'all to get off my property, okay? So if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Now, the cops are already on their way.
0: Yeah, which I thought was a very clever bit of writing. Good job there.
1: Yeah, and like, especially since... There are definitely parts of this film where I hear Gabe, and all I can th- hear is Dave Chappelle's white voice. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked, little buddy. Um, this here is cauliflower. This is corned beef hash, and these are parsnips.
0: Yeah, I see it. That's probably a decent read. Um, for me, the re- I read this as being kind of a critique of performative philanthropy because, like, the Hands Across the American movement. Was this thing where it was like a we're raising money to fight homelessness thing that cost about 14 to 16 million to like advertise and organize and made about 15 million? So it was kind of a wash, like it raised awareness, I guess, but overall it was roughly a zero sum game, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this movie is about people who are kind of in a position of social safety fighting to preserve that at all costs. Child Red has the opportunity to just leave this oppressed underbelly, this like literally lower class that mm-hmm. she's in. But she instead chooses to force someone else to take her place as if there's a limited number of resources, a limited number of slots. Then there's the, when the uprising happens, Red performing as Adelaide is quick to enact violence against her people, as it were, or at least the people she came from, to preserve her class status mm-hmm. and to hide her, her history. Yeah. And
1: then Adelaide, as Red, also specifically calls her out. I never stop thinking about you.
0: How things could have been. Oh, You could have taken me with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that the idea that the critique of class and class mobility is a big part of this. And I think it's really interesting to see all the ways that it plays out. Like our main family that we're focusing on, uh, Adeline and Gabe, have clearly a reasonable amount of money. But when we contrast them with our friends who have like more money. Like their house is like kind of... Pleasant core folks, see, they have a boat that is very clearly secondhand, doesn't really work just to the left or whatever. Whereas Josh and Kitty have a bigger boat and a nicer house. It is like all this modern sleek architecture with like a Google Home thing. should also
1: mention that both of these are vacation homes. Yes.
0: Which still, like, if you have a vacation home, you still probably deserve to be eaten, is what I'm saying. But this family don't deserve to be eaten as much as Josh and Kitty. Mm-hmm. So honestly, for me, this is kind of a tragedy because... Based on what the film is telling us about the world, these families are villains, even if they're protagonists, and they wind up winning in the end. The uprising doesn't seem to be all that successful if we're looking at the microcosm of Adeline and Gabe's family versus Red and Abraham's family. And the film's can to be telling us that this underclass aren't able to perform revolution beyond what they've been fed from the people above them. They can do violence, but then they just kind of stop there and just do more performative activism again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although this time, The Hands Across America is a much more literal
1: interpretation. Yes. I honestly love that because it's very obviously something that was lost
0: in translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a Dharma congelada Tanagra thing happening here. Mm-hmm. With the commentary on class status thing, I think I what was interesting was that the, if we, so, I mean, obviously class is a very complicated thing. There's social stratification even within the, the upper class of this movie. But if you look at the upper class and lower class, it's just kind of two categories. The lower class men can still verbalize, they can still talk a little bit, but the women seemingly can't at all. So, like, even within the lower class, men still have a bit more social privilege than women do, which I think was a really cool little note on how, like, gender privilege even exists within class stratification. Mm-hmm.
1: Intersectionality.
0: Yeah. Or the, like, lower class white woman doesn't get to scream. I'm intrigued by the idea that lower class women don't get to communicate. They only get to die and scream about it. Mm-hmm. Which is a, a very haunting read. a good job, Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. A lot of these aren't necessarily my thoughts. These are, like, things that I've picked up from looking at other people's comments on it. Like, this isn't like, oh, I got this all the first watch through. Yeah.
1: This movie is, I don't want to necessarily say subtle, but it takes some picking apart. Yeah, If you've been a fan of the podcast for a long time and are looking to interact with the film in a way similar to the way that we do, Us is probably a pretty good thing to kind of test yourself on.
0: Mm -hmm. It definitely rewards you for watching multiple times and for going deeper, as it were. Mm -hmm. Also, I like that much like Colossal, there is this kind of mystical, magical thing that exists in this film that the movie does not feel the need to explain at all. It's just that's how it works.
1: See for me like I wanted a little bit more about the tethering and Mm -hmm. how that all worked and honestly just why in the first place Mm -hmm. even like how long it's been going on we don't really get a whole lot of information in that regard and I'm not necessarily saying that that is a problem with the film but the way my mind works I wanted more and I couldn't make that part of my mind shut up and just enjoy the rest of the film
0: That's fair I think you can extrapolate some things. Like, there's some of the furniture left lying around in those tunnels looks kind of 50s-ish. I feel like this is the same kind of science, TM, that we're finding in, like, Shape of Water. Mm-hmm. Um, That same kind of time period, roughly. Yeah, like, weird science happening in the 50s because of the Cold War. And I'm glad that we don't actually know. We have Adelaide performing as Red speculating on what she thinks best and what she's found. But that's all. She doesn't have, like, concrete proof of anything. Mm-hmm. Which I think was a good choice. Minor spoilers for Get Out, but there's a point where someone just like sits down and explains it all to you directly, what's happening. And I think that this is a good contrast where there's this thing going on, but we don't really know why, um, which I think is a good exploration of how if you are under-resourced and kind of living in the tyranny of poverty for a long time, it's not always easy to understand the, the mechanics of why you're there. This isn't to say that like, you can't figure out or that you can't learn or that you can't develop a nuanced understanding of it, but that understanding is often intentionally obfuscated by people in power as a way to keep that a thing. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right that there's probably a version of this that had a more explicit explanation of how it works, why it works, what it was all for existing, like finding that scientist somewhere to like, this this was our plan, we wanted to do the thing because we could, but Yeah. yeah. But I think this is one of those things where the movie wants you to kind of just hashtag just go with it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Hashtag fairy logic. Hashtag something. Hashtag.
1: Yeah, there, there was just something about it that I just couldn't suspend my disbelief for. Like, I, I needed more information.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was kind of in a like limbo state where I'm like, I want to get on board, but I need more.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's fair. That's totally fair.
1: Honestly, I think that's probably my biggest criticism of the film. Mm-hmm. Everything else I really enjoyed. I think one of my favorite scenes is Gabe, at the beginning of the film, buys a boat second Now uh, We we talked about it already. It's a little beat up. And while he's at the beach with his friend Josh, he and Josh are talking about... You, got, so you, gotta, you, you gotta make sure you have the essentials. You got the life preservers? Got that. You got a fire extinguisher? Got that. You, you have a flare gun? Uh,
0: I knew you'd fucking forget the flare gun.
1: Well, later on, when Gabe is fighting Josh's doppelganger on Josh's boat, he finds his flare gun and uses it against the
0: doppelganger. And it doesn't help. <laughs> like, I like that both that the checkout flare gun, like, setup up and payoff was great, but also I like that he fires it and it just kind of yeah. doesn't actually, like, do anything. It's not that thing from movies where flare guns are as effective as normal guns. Mm-hmm. Also another red thing. <laughs> yeah. A lot of red in this movie. Mm-hmm.
1: One other thing that I'd like to draw attention to is the acting coming from all of the like major characters. Mm, for sure. Winston Duke, Lupita Nyong'o, and the kids are all doing a fantastic job because all of them have to play two very different characters. One of those characters is relegated to nonverbal communication with the exception of Red And very often, they are having to portray both characters within the the same scene. Mm -hmm. That's not easy to do, and they do an incredible job making sure that both of these characters feel very distinct and different. Mm -hmm. There's also something really fantastic about Lupita Nyong'o's eyes in this film. The way that she's able to use them to accentuate her emotional state is great. There's something about the size of her eyes and relationship to the rest of her face, and just the contrast between the whites of her eyes and her dark skin tone that just makes them really pop and it's really effective. It's great that A, she knows how to use them very well, and B, that Jordan Peele was able to use that to his advantage in the film.
0: Mm-hmm. I didn't have a chance to look it up. Well, sorry, I did have a chance to look it up. I chose not to through recalcitrance. My bad. Uh, I don't know if this like got a lot of awards for acting, but I kind of hope it did because- this is Lupita Nyong'o's first like starring role in a movie. She's mm-hmm. been like secondary characters and everything up until now, and oh she carries this whole film on her mm-hmm. back. She's got that great horror archetype of like the indomitable mother, which mm-hmm. is always really fun to watch. Yeah. But also her performance as Red is just as interesting as it's kind of off her rocker but still like very determined person who has like very precise dancerly movements is so cool. Mm-hmm. And the contrast between these very like precise dancerly movements of, of red versus Adelaide's kind of like very wild fluid, fearful motions is really great.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's all I have to say about us.
0: I mean I think of, uh, Lots of things to say about us, but we could be here for hours. I th- there is no way for us to unpack all of us right here, and uh, I think it's okay to only scratch some of the surface.
1: Yeah, um, uh, because we have a whole another film to talk about from yep. ten, 10 years prior. Yep, we are talking about benefits Johnny. So, for those of you who need a summary, Anita Needy Lesnicki retells the story of how she went from an insecure teen to a violent inmate in a psychiatric Needy had been friends with Jennifer Cech, a popular cheerleader, since childhood, despite having almost nothing in common. One night, Jennifer drags Needy to a local bar to hear Low Shoulder, an indie band from the city, play and seduce the lead singer. A fire erupts, and while the band, Jennifer, and Needy all escape, the rest aren't as lucky. Disoriented from the ordeal, Jennifer decides to leave with the band, ignoring Needy's warning. Later that night, Jennifer shows up in Needy's home, still out of it, but now covered in blood and vomiting black sludge. The next day at school, while the community unpacks the tragedy at the bar, Jennifer is back to normal and dismisses above the grief. Jennifer then begins seducing and disemboweling boys at the school. Needy catches her after a kill, and later Jennifer shows up in Needy's room to explain. Low Shoulder performed a satanic ritual to achieve fame and used Jennifer as a virgin sacrifice. But she survived and now has supernatural abilities. Needy does occult research and learns that since Jennifer wasn't a virgin, she's become a succubus and must feed on humans to survive. Needy warns Chip, but he doesn't believe her, leading to him being attacked by Jennifer on his way to the school dance. Needy realizes something's wrong and finds Jennifer feeding on Chip. Needy manages to fight Jennifer off and wound her, but Chip's injuries are too severe and he dies. Needy breaks into Jennifer's room while she's weak and stabs her through the heart, destroying the demon, but is caught red handed by Jennifer's mother. We then return to the present. Needy escapes the facility and takes vengeance on Low Shoulder, killing them in their hotel room.
0: Just want to reiterate: Low Shoulder can go die in a fire. That song is—it's very catchy, and it's actually like—it's a bop. Part of the like story of the movie is that Low Shoulder become very famous through like this devil contract. They make a lot of money. Um, they they're on tour and all this stuff, and their song is playing all the time. And Needy is just so over it, which I get, but also I think that the creators did a honestly very difficult job of making. it a song for a film that feels like it really would be a like number one pop hit this fits very easily into your green days your your panic of the discos arguably your funds
1: that sort of indie pop punk sort of silence that were very popular in the mid
0: 2000s and in my ipod mm-hmm. <laughs> this movie soundtrack was made for me is what i'm saying mm-hmm.
1: i think it's also the way that the film uses low shoulder even though they're not in most of the film is really a Effective, the town kind of gloms onto Low Shoulder and that song specifically as a way to deal with their grief. Low Shoulder also gets credited for saving a few people coming out of the fire, and they're kind of hailed as heroes of the town.
0: They donate a, a whopping three percent of the proceeds of the, the profits of their single to the town's recovery efforts.
1: And the way that they become these heroes and untouchable and no one's willing to hear criticism of them. They didn't help anybody escape the fire. I don't even know how that rumor got started. Rumor? <laughs> it's true. It's on their Wikipedia. We wouldn't even know who they were if they hadn't
0: been playing that night. They used us. You take that back, Needy less, nikki
1: Blaze into the film used as an allegory for sexual assault mm-hmm. and- Trying to get justice when the perpetrators are untouchable.
0: Mm-hmm. Also, the lead singer of Lo Shulder gets a, a great bit where he's trying to get Jennifer off to the ritual, so he's like, Listen, it's uh, really dangerous out here. You want to head someplace safer, like my van? Uh,
1: there's also a very telling line when Jennifer is in that said van and just kind of getting nervous about what's going on. She asks them, Are you guys rapists? So- And they never actually answer that question. Yep. They just deflect. Yep. I think the underlying allegory of Jennifer's body works incredibly well. I think Diablo Cody definitely did a lot of thinking about that seeking of justice after an assault Mm -hmm. and the obstacles that are often in women's way and kind of being able to get some sort of catharsis from the during credit sequence um,
0: murder of the band. Mm hmm. I have some thoughts, but I think I want to circle back later because there, I think that'll be like a better like end of this conversation thing. We'll, we'll get there eventually. Yes. Before we get there, I want to talk about Jennifer as a character and how it kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, I find her unbelievably dumb. So the idea of Jennifer is that she's like kind of like this quintessential bimbo from a, like a small town, but like the amount that she is unintelligent fluctuates wildly through the movie in ways that don't feel believable to me. Like, someone asks her to uh, Rocky Horror, and she'll say, I don't like boxing movies. But then she'll, she'll talk about what happened to her and her succubus powers and all that stuff with this kind of airheaded approach, but then she'll have zingers, like, telling like, a scene kid recovered covered in chains.
1: Nice hardware, Ace.
0: It is enough to take me out of the film that this character doesn't feel cohesive to me. See, I felt that her airheadedness was performative to maintain
1: her social position and to make the men that she's
0: attempting to seduce feel superior. Sure, but I also see it when she's alone with Needy, which is where I feel like she would drop that. I could see it being possibly part of a a manipulation thing, but in that case, we never really get to to know the real Jennifer and that, I, I don't know. I mean, the thing about
1: it is Jennifer, even before the whole succubus thing, is not designed to be a sympathetic character. Oh no. She is very obviously abusing her friendship with Needy for her own ends. Exactly what
0: those ends are isn't very clear self-gratification she has an image of herself that is probably at odds with her ability to manifest it since she's living in a small town mm-hmm. i get that like i don't think she has like a particular goal beyond
1: needing someone around to always feel superior to
0: something like that yeah or seeing herself in a particular way and wanting someone who can kind of facilitate that mm-hmm. i also think that she's kind of lonely there's a lot to jennifer to unpack and i feel like she's not quite consistent enough to feel like i can really dig into that
1: I will admit, I'm probably not as hard on Jennifer's characterization as you are, but that's more likely because I saw this maybe a year or so after it came out, mm-hmm. and I had seen Megan Fox's performance in the first two Transformers films, mm, which I
0: still haven't seen. I saw Baldur and that's it.
1: And watching Jennifer's body was a revelation because I'm like, oh, Megan Fox is actually a really good actress. What the hell went wrong? Mm-hmm. And honestly, I didn't have an answer to that question for a number of years. I think probably the answer that most satisfies me is actually from Dan Olson. He has a video on ludonarrative dissonance, uh, which is a term in video games where the mechanics of the game don't necessarily match up with the uh, narrative of the game, and they kind of butt up against each other. In that video, he also talks about cinema narrative dissonance, where what the narrative of the film is trying to tell you butts up against what the camera and the visuals are trying to tell you, and he specifically uses... Megan Fox's character of Michaela in the Transformers films as a example, where the narrative is trying to tell you that she's hardworking, intelligent, and very competent. The camera treats her as a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I was really not into her performance in those films, and why I was able to like, oh, this is actually really good because it's way above my previous perception of Megan Fox.
0: That's fair. None of my complaints about Jennifer are about the, the acting; she's doing a great job. I, yeah. I agree. I think I think it's like something about the writing doesn't quite gel for yeah. me. I think the film is doing a decent job talking about abusive relationships, like abusive friendships that blur the line into romantic sexual relationships and how that kind of is complicated and messy and getting over them. That's an important thing to talk about. I'm mm-hmm. glad it's here to, to do that.
1: Yeah. We did not have a lot of media at the time that was dealing with toxic friendships. Mm-hmm. We have a little bit more now, but it's still a underexplored area.
0: Yeah. And we can always deal with more because I think there's a lot of ways for that to go down. Mm-hmm. And it's okay for that to be, to be messy and to get weird. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot to unpack about Jennifer and Needy's relationship and how their mutual, question mark, attraction to each other complicates their actions. Jennifer being a succubus before they ever actually, like, make out creates a complication to where that all falls in. I'm not sure exactly how Jennifer felt about Needy uh, at the start of the film. And I don't think Jennifer and Needy are ever entirely sure how they feel about each other for most of the film. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think Needy has a pretty clear idea of how she feels about Jennifer when she stabs her through the heart with a box cutter.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that scene does have that amazing bit where Needy rips off the BFF necklace from Jennifer and Jennifer stops levitating and they lose that second connection. That was cool.
1: Speaking of romantic relationship, I want to talk about Needy and Chip a little bit. Mm -hmm. The film does something interesting and it has this role reversal where Needy realizes that the people close to her are in danger because she knows what's going on with Jennifer and so she does that thing that men do all the time in action films where she pushes Chip away for his own safety. I'll be at the dance. I just need to keep an eye on Jennifer. Promise me you're not gonna go. Nee, I'm not your guy anymore. Chip, it's not safe for us to be together right now and i don't think that that's something that i've ever really seen like do that sort of role reversal i think that's interesting
0: mm-hmm. i think i've seen it in like a few tv shows cuz there's this happens in every single urban fantasy thing ever and this is probably like a very early example of that
1: yeah i'm sure i can probably go back and find a couple of examples in charmed or yeah. something but i don't think any of them are quite as significant as this one here
0: i will say i'm not entirely sure if i believe it because i don't necessarily get a sense of a threat to needy or her family from jennifer because at this point almost a month has passed since jennifer came out of the what do you call it for being a succubus came out of the sex dungeon to needy Nidhi and needy's been free to like research occultism without obstruction like jennifer's not like threatening her that we see
1: I don't think it had been that long. because She starts her research just the day after she finds out.
0: Mm-hmm. And it takes about a month between Jennifer Feeding, I believe, isn't it? Is that a thing?
1: Uh, it doesn't necessarily. Oh, okay, that's fair. Like, that's, was... that's the maximum. <laughs> ah, I see. Sure. There was a month passed between the football player and Colin.
0: Ah, there we go. okay.
1: But she fed on the exchange student right after the fire, and then just the next day fed on the football
0: player. Mm, okay, sure. You know what? I will retract that. Then there's a, I can believe a little bit more if there's not a month of nothing happening.
1: I will say that this film doesn't do a great job of letting the audience know just how much time has passed between things. There's a number of weird time skips and just kind of this acronality to a lot of it.
0: Mm-hmm. It kind of has a thing from Saved where a lot of time passes in which you would assume that things would happen given the emotion of these characters, but nothing does. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a lot stronger if this was all happening over the course of like a week or so. That would resolve a lot of my, like, minor quibbles with the pacing and and how things play out.
1: Yeah. I also think that setting the beginning of this film after all the events with Jennifer didn't really do the film any favors. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think we needed it. I think we could have just had that as a bittersweet ending and then had a post-credit scene that gives us the actual, like, final little bit of the film.
0: Mm-hmm. A thing that we established pretty quickly towards the end is that if a demon bites you and you live, you get their powers. Mm-hmm. And you could have easily had that happen. Just visually, not have to have Needy explaining. You just have her like start levitating after she kills Jennifer or whatever, mm-hmm. and she goes out to kill a shoulder. I think it's part of the somewhat cool hit meta thing this film is doing. It might have been stronger if it was just a little bit more genuine. Yeah. Uh, especially that's another weird scene. Like, there's interplay of jennifer and chip having sex for i think the first time with uh,
1: i don't think so because he said, mentioned getting more condoms okay
0: sure so just them having sex and jennifer eating colin and i don't quite get like the what the film is trying to say about this interplay i don't know
1: yeah it's also like needy starts having like a panic attack about the whole thing during sex but colin reads it as an orgasm
0: mm-hmm. not not the greatest thing but
1: one like major thing that i do want to talk about is the title of the film Mm-hmm. So the title is actually drawn from a song by the band Garbage. For those of you are unfamiliar, it's Courtney Love's band, but the song deals with a very violent sexual assault and then kind of hiding the body sort of thing. It's kind of gruesome, and it plays into this sense that the film's not about Jennifer. It is about Jennifer's body, her physical form, and... Even the title shows how objectified Jennifer is by the rest of the school, by Low Shoulder. And it's not really about who Jennifer is as a person. It's about her body as a means to an end. Here, it's for a satanic ritual sacrifice. The subtext is for sexual gratification. And, you know, later parts of the film, it's for a succubus to run rampant.
0: Mm -hmm. A vessel.
1: Yeah. And... I think it's really interesting how strong that is and how it just is kind of reinforces this objectification that the film is trying to call attention to. Mm-hmm.
0: I will say that I think that doesn't sit well with me is that taking the metaphor to its conclusion makes me feel bad for Jennifer and like this is more of a tragedy than it gets acknowledged as being. Like the whole film, not just the initial low shoulder stuff, mm-hmm. in ways that don't sit well with me in terms of talking about stories of violence to women, I guess. That she's already kind of a bit of a jerk, gets attacked and becomes more of a jerk, and then has to be violently attacked again. I don't like the implication there, I guess.
1: And that's completely reasonable. Like,
0: I'm not saying that sometimes people don't respond to violence in unhealthy ways that makes you someone you have to cut out of your life. That totally happens. However, it feels cruel to Jennifer, I guess.
1: I think that's completely reasonable, and I'm, I'm not sure how much of that is intentional.
0: Yeah, it's the kind of thing where like, it might be just because we're following the metaphor to its logical conclusion mm-hmm. when this is also a fun, wacky urban fantasy thing. Fun coming-of-age story, you know, the, the classic coming-of-age story forever bisexual, where you have to lo- lose both your love interests in the same night. <laughs> also, we're recording this on Bisexual Visibility Day. Yay! I go both ways. Go look at Brennan Yuri. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I definitely think that the allegory is interesting, and I think it has strong parts, but I'm not going to say that it doesn't fumble others.
0: Mm-hmm. That's it. I know a lot of people have a lot of warm feeling towards this movie. Like People, especially queer women, seem to have a lot of affection for it. And as someone who's not a queer woman, I'm sorry if what I'm saying is coming from a place of bias that is shitty. so sorry about that. Yeah.
1: And I totally get it. This film solely done by female creators. The director is female. The writer is female. Both the main protagonist and antagonists
0: are women. Mm-hmm. Everyone has moms, but no one seems to have dads, mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting thing.
1: We see J.K. Simmons as kind of like the school dad, as the the teacher. What is he doing here? <laughs> He seems to be having fun. That's to, true. He gets to wear a hook. That's true. And then we also get the football player's dad. I'm pretty sure the actor portraying him is also the voice of Patrick from SpongeBob SquarePants. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, if someone wants to cut in his line into Patrick saying it and send it to me, please do. That sounds great. you hear me, you bastard? I'll cut off your nutsack and nail it to my door! Like one of those lion. Knockers, rich folks got, that will be your
0: balls. and he swears vengeance against whoever killed his son and has never heard from him again so that's honestly kind of funny <laughs> i
1: think i'm about ready to wrap up and move into our end segment how about you yeah we can wrap up all right well that means that it is time for
0: final girl best girl who most effectively defeats the monster in this movie i really haven't said the monsters this week are doppelgangers and succubi mm. we always forget to do that
1: honestly i think i'm gonna have to go with needy on this because Red slash Adelaide is kind of the impetus for all of the violence happening, and most of the violence isn't averted.
0: There is still an uprising that has happened. It's not, like, fixed. So still as one family did okay.
1: Yeah. Whereas Needy both takes care of the
0: succubus and low shoulder mm-hmm. and has superpowers. Mm-hmm. Honestly, Needy did it pretty well for herself. This is a very good origin story for your Monster of the Week character.
1: So, yeah, Needy is our. Best Girl this week.
0: Mm-hmm. But what is our best movie this week?
1: I was not expecting that by the end of our discussion that these would be as close as they are, mm-hmm. but I am going to push Us forward. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that Jennifer's Body, it's a lot deeper than it first appears. It feels very shallow, and it was definitely marketed that way when it first came out. I'm glad that later on it has gotten some of the accolades that it deserves, but I definitely think that Us is a stronger film overall.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that Jennifer's body getting a kind of ongoing cultural reexamination is fun and good, and I'd actually love to see it be like a Netflix miniseries uh, redo. I think it's a very strong story that would probably be better served by having a little more time to dig into it. Mm. So that means
1: that us is moving forward, and Jennifer's body will be sacrificed. Oh man, <laughs> you used back in the kitchen yeah yeah. In the last I, know, I know
0: I know I I started this. I I think next week I'm gonna have to come up with something even worse, but.
1: Speaking of next week, we have our final two films of round one, Mm -hmm. where we will be discussing
0: Carrie and Oculus. Mm -hmm. That's our psychic and haunted object movies. Mm -hmm. And also the redheaded Showdown. (laughs) Yes. And we are specifically
1: dealing with the Carrie from the 1970s, not the more recent one with uh, Chloe Grace Mortez. But if you want to make sure to catch that episode as soon as it goes live, make sure to follow us. On Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Filing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.